With spring right around the corner, maybe you like me, you're excited to get out for longer walks and runs, pick up a new book to read outside, or just get out and explore new neighborhoods and food. Or we could do all three wrapped in one. Our friends over at Read and Run Chicago are expanding to nearby Lamont for three different meetups. The group is like a combination running club, book club, and neighborhood tour, and each route in Lamont is about three miles paired with a different book from Pat Camaliere's Corotazi Historical Mystery Series. Afterwards, you'll get to sit down with the author and historian and sample some food from local restaurants. The first run is Saturday, March 23rd. Spots are limited and are going to go fast. So register now at readandrunchicago.com or find the link on their Instagram at readandrunchicago. Today on CityCast Chicago, writer and professor Zay Dorn was born underground. That's because his parents were on the run from the FBI. Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers were the leaders of the Weather Underground. That was the radical leftist group that declared war on the United States, fighting alongside the likes of the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton. Now, even if you know of the Weather Underground, trust me, you don't know it quite like this. Zay Dorn's podcast, Mother Country Radicals, tells their history from the point of view of son asking his parents tough questions about their storied and revolutionary past, including their role in the bombing of the Pentagon in May 1972. It's Wednesday, May 17th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is what Chicago's talking about. Zay, welcome back to CityCast Chicago. Thanks, Cody. Thanks for having me. When did the Weather Underground form, and what was its mission in those early days? Yeah, well, the Weather Underground formed officially in uh, 1969 at the Democratic National, I mean, at the uh, SDS convention in Chicago. And um, it really, the mission was SDS at the time, Students for Democratic Society, was the biggest um, student anti-war group in the country. And my mom, uh, Bernadine, was the president of that group, one of the three national secretaries, they called them. And, uh, but, but there was internal dissension within the group. There was a lot of fighting about which way to go, how, you know, the war had been going on, the Vietnam War had been going on for a long time. Racism, police violence was kind of rocking the country and, and the city of Chicago in particular. The Weathermen formed as a kind of a small group of people within the anti-war movement who basically said, we have to get more radical. We have to do more. We have to take action. We, we got to stop talking. And my mom was the leader of that group. It was different than other radical groups. If you think of like the Black Panthers, for example, they their their sort of mission and the the way they carried it out was was different. Absolutely, and I mean, you mentioned one of their most famous actions, which was the bombing of the Pentagon on May nineteenth. But you know, they carried out a, a long string of bombings in opposition to the war, and also to try to protest uh, police violence and you know the killing of Fred Hampton in Chicago, other killings of Black people by police across the country. So they bombed New York New York City Police Headquarters. They bombed uh, the State Department. They bombed. Uh, Harvard lab that was responsible for some war, uh, you know, research and and war funding, and and you know they also did actions like uh, breaking Timothy Leary out of prison, the famous acid guru who was uh, locked up for marijuana possession. So they were involved in a wide range of kind of, and of course there was the Days of Rage riot protest in Chicago, which was a, a massive violent protest in the Magnificent Mile that lasted three days, and resulted in you know 
many, many arrests and injuries and and property damage. Listening to the podcast as you and and some of those individuals narrate things like being in the streets during the days of rage, and they described individuals sort of tinkering away at bombs at a at a New York City apartment that exploded, killing members. It, it's a very visceral experience. Uh, sort of sort of listening through this. What was that like hearing some of those stories? The reason we decided to make it as a podcast rather than a book or, or something like that is there is something really visceral and intense and immersive about hearing people tell these stories, telling the story of the Days of Rage or, or telling the story of the townhouse explosion where some of these people died uh, trying to build bombs to bomb a military installation. And we have one of the women who was in the townhouse at the time of the explosion mm-hmm. describing what it was like to be in a house that was literally detonating uh, from a, a, a bomb factory in the basement. There was a loud noise, and the whole house sort of lifted up a foot or two and then just kind of disintegrated all around me. I couldn't see anything because it, it was just solid dust and splinters. There were not floors and walls. You didn't know where to take a step, even. The dust is in my eyes, so I, I can't, like, look. I can only blink open and blink close constantly. It's, like, very strobe-like. I had no shoes on. I don't have any idea how I managed to walk across all the splinters and rubbles. And then there was a big, huge crater down to where they were. My dad's girlfriend died in the townhouse explosion, so to go back to that time and really uh, try to immerse myself in that family history, um, you know, it was sometimes pretty affecting. As we said, you were born underground and were underground for the first years of your life. How did your parents really shape that that world for you? You know what it looked like? I mean, it's funny for a kid, of course, I, I was one, two, three, four years old. And so it was the only life I'd ever known. So what it looked like was my life. But, you know, looking back on it, what it meant was uh, a lot of moving around, a lot of sometimes having to pack up in the middle of the night and and move to a new place. It meant that my parents had fake names. I knew that, that that outside the house they would be called, you know, Rose and Tony, and inside the house they were mom and dad, and I knew that their names were Bill and Bernadine. I was called Z outside the house. So, you know, I knew we had these fake names, and I knew that the police were chasing us. I knew that the FBI was, was after us. I, I, I say in the podcast, I'm not sure I ever knew what the FBI was exactly. Like they told me the FBI is chasing us, but for a little kid, you're like, well, that doesn't sound good, you know, but it sound, it was more like some kind of abstract um, mm-hmm. boogeyman to me, you know? And, you know, we turned ourselves in when I was four. My mom went to jail, didn't, you know, when I was five, didn't get out until I was seven. So, you know, my childhood was marked by this kind of strange, you know, first being fugitives and then my mom being incarcerated. How much of your parents' story did you know before you started this podcast? Yeah, I knew the broad strokes, of course. I should say, you know, they never lied to me about any of this. I mean, we had a kind of family where I, I knew that my mom was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. I knew that that we were running from the law. And later, I knew that many of my parents' friends were in jail. And I knew that 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 in my family, the police were the bad guys and the outlaws were the good guys. That was all kind of pretty present in my life. But Yeah, certainly as an adult digging back into it, I learned things that I had never known before, you know, and and one of those big things was I learned a lot more about the centrality of of race in my parents' politics and the fact that the Weather Underground was not just this 
group of anti-war white kids, but was actually very closely allied with black liberation groups like the Black Panther Party and like the Black Liberation Army. So, you know, part of it for me was digging back into it to kind of try to understand from today's perspective, when we talk about, you know, things like allyship, to try to understand, you know, what my parents were thinking at the time, how these young people ended up deciding to, you know, risk their lives, risk their freedom to uh, fight back against the American government at a time when I think a lot of people thought that was a crazy idea. City of Chicago Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection offers a free entrepreneur certificate program for future and current business owners in Chicago. Participants must complete six webinars within six months in designated webinar categories. Graduates are eligible to apply for the CIBC Bank USA Entrepreneur Loan Program, a bank partner with BACP. The longstanding program was created to support startup or early stage small businesses, gain entrepreneur training with important work capital. Since the program launched, more than 1,000 Chicago entrepreneurs and business owners have successfully completed the program. Completing the process is as easy as one, two, three. Number one, register by signing up at chicago.gov slash BACP certificate. Number two, attend six webinars by registering for upcoming webinars at chicago.gov slash BACP webinars. And number three, graduate from the program and you'll receive your digital certificate and information on connecting with CIBC Bank USA. To learn more about the BACP Entrepreneur Certificate Program, please visit chicago.gov slash BACP certificate. And doing this podcast and interviewing your parents and their their comrades and friends, what were some of the most significant things you learned for the first time? I think one of the most significant things, you know, I was making the, the show uh, during the pandemic in kind of 2000, 2020, 2021. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that was so, I don't know, it just jumped out at me for obvious reasons is that I was talking to all these radicals, white and black radicals, my parents, members of the Weather Underground, but also members of the Black Liberation Army like uh, Jamal Joseph and Seiko Odinga. And, you know, I'd be talking to them about what had initially radicalized them. And so many of them would tell a story of a black man being killed by police in America, whether that was Fred Hampton in 1970 or this 10 year old boy, Clifford Glover in Queens in 1974. So for so many of these young people, those were the moments that had kind of first radicalized them. And that was just something I'd never understood before. And while I was making the show, while I was interviewing these people, George Floyd was killed. We had this kind of massive uprising on the streets of America. And it, it just started to feel like, yeah, there's a real, I don't know, a real synchronicity, a historical rhyme happening where we're starting to see again this same scourge of, of racism and of police violence that we have not gotten rid of in this country, but that's radicalizing another generation of people. And I thought that was an important and interesting uh, lesson from this history. In addition to your parents' reaction to right, the continued lynching on national television uh, of yeah. Black people by police officers, what is their response to seeing just how much, particularly in like Chicago, young organizers and activists are continuing to move forward in terms of marches for Black liberation? Yeah, you can imagine they are are thrilled by the the kind of, 
I think they feel, you know, that their generation tried really hard to end some of these problems, you know, to end war, to end imperialism, to end racism. And obviously that didn't happen. But, you know, I think they also feel that they were one small part of a generations of, of struggle that have, that have been happening. And I think for them, it's really inspiring to see a new generation kind of pick up that torch and say, like, you know, we're learning from history, but we're also going to try to do it better. And, and we're going to, you know, we're going to keep on fighting until this is a better country and until some of these, these problems have actually been addressed. So, and my parents are still out there, you know, they're 80 years old and they're still out there marching in the BLM protests. And, you know, they're there when, you know, there's protests against the killing of Laquan McDonald. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're lifelong activists and they're still, they're still doing this stuff. So, um, yeah, I think they're really inspired by what's going on in Chicago. Were there any topics off limits for them? How did your parents react to those, maybe those pressing questions? Yeah, well, that was something I was very aware of when I was doing it. So, you know, we had some ground rules. Basically, um, I told them I was going to ask whatever I was going to ask and that I could, I was going to press them if they didn't, you know, if they were, if I felt like they weren't being honest or if I felt like they were missing something, but that, you know, also if they had to say they couldn't talk about something, they could say they wouldn't talk about something. And I'll tell you, there was only really one category of things that they wouldn't talk about, and that was actions that could implicate other people. So, you know, when I was talking to them about some of these joint actions between the Weather Underground and the Black Liberation Army, sometimes they would say, you know, well, we can't talk about that. That's stuff that, that you know, you'd have to find, uh, you'd have to talk to the, the actual people who were there and decide, and they can decide for themselves, but they were not about to, name names or get anybody else in trouble. So that was the one time when people would say to me, not yeah, just no my snitching parents. in their DNA. Yeah, but everything else people were pretty uh, pretty forthcoming, pretty honest about. There are still political prisoners sitting behind bars now. Many black leaders were executed during this time. You know, how do your parents talk about how essentially white privilege still in many ways benefits them in the end and hearing, you know, your father wasn't charged and why your mom served time, yeah. uh, you, you know, ultimately wasn't, you know, held in prison for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very present in their minds at all times. You know, some of their comrades did decades and, you know, some some white people, some members of the Weather Underground, Kathy Boudin, David Gilbert, David Gilbert did 40 years in prison. But you're absolutely right that for that in, in, in the main, one thing we were so aware of while we were making this show is that we when we reached out to talk to people in the Black Liberation Army, we got a couple people like Jamal Joseph, who talked to us extensively and who's you know a really brilliant person and a, and a great interview. But a lot of people we couldn't talk to because they were either in prison or dead. And, and so it was just very vivid that a lot of the white activists, as hard as they had tried to you know, escape their white privilege or put aside their white privilege and be good allies, be good comrades. You're right. You know, they ultimately in America, there's no escaping white privilege. It's just part of the fabric of our society. So, you know, it's true that the the, the black activists of the time, people like Fred Hampton, people like Asada Shakur, paid a much heavier price. I mean, you really asked this question a few times across the episodes, like, how can these two people decide to bring a child into this? Were there things that you learned that made you feel differently about your parents? Yes, there were. And I, it was a, it was a complicated and sometimes dangerous feeling process to talk to them about these things. So going into it, I had a certain amount of fear or, or anxiety about it. And I did learn some things. I don't know if they changed the way I feel about them. I mean, I came out of the process, if anything, admiring my parents more than when mm. I went into it. But yeah, there were things. I'll tell you one example. When I was growing up, you know, the, the story in my family was always that um, 
you know, as, as much as my parents had been breaking the law and as long they'd been underground for all these years and they, they had me when they were underground. But the story in my family was that once they had me, they decided they wouldn't take those risks anymore. They would, they would focus on being parents and, and try to kind of surface and go back to having relatively normal lives to, in order to give me a normal life. And there was truth to that story, but it wasn't entirely true. And I learned doing this podcast that my dad had taken part in, in a very dangerous, uh, risky uh, action when I was a, a kid at home. He had participated in a jailbreak with the Black Liberation Army and that that was a story I'd never known as a kid. I always assumed that once my parents were parents, they gave all that up. So to learn that they were still active, violent revolutionaries with me sitting at home waiting for them, that was a pretty um, startling revelation for me. Did you ever take part in actions after I was born while you were still underground? I was involved in a few things. And one of them was, in fact, a, a jailbreak. And I can't tell you any of the details except to say that we were pretty clear that Bernadine would be with you and that I would do this, and then we would uh, assess it after the fact. But it was, in retrospect, really risky and really on the edge. Mm -hmm. That sort of generational uh, question uh, goes down to even your daughter, who at one point, I believe, says in the last episode to you and your father, Bill Ayers, something to the effect that it's crazy to care more about the movement and, you know, sticking it to the man and care about your family, <laughs> that, that you could take some action that could create problems for your family, possibly separating from them. You know, what, what did you think about hearing that? It's one of my favorite moments in the show. This was in the last episode. I was I had already written most of the show. We'd recorded most of it, but I was trying to think about how to end the show. And we were sitting around at dinner with my my kids and my parents. So three generations at dinner, and everybody just started having this conversation about John Brown because my 13 year old daughter had been studying John Brown at school. And John Brown is my dad's hero. The, you know, he's this famous abolitionist, radical abolitionist who led the raid on Harper's Ferry that some people say started the Civil War. Uh, and for my dad, that kind of, you know, having a white radical being willing to risk his life for black liberation, that's that's how he sees himself. It's how he, you know, he, he admires that so much. But my 13-year-old had been studying John Brown in school, and she was scandalized by the fact that he would sacrifice not only himself, but his family, his children for that cause. So they got into this argument, and I just secretly slipped my iPhone onto the table and hit record because <laughs> I was like, oh, man, this is too good. I got to put this in the show. And I love that moment because it really just honestly, you know, it's it's these... Two people, uh, 70 years apart in age and, and very different in generation, but they're just kind of having this conversation about priorities and about how you think about that. And they still joke about it now that I put it on the show. You know, people always ask my daughter about it and ask my dad about it. And so every time he sees her, he's like, you know, I won that argument with you. I, 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 th I think I, I kicked your ass in that argument. She, but everybody who sees her says, you know, you were, you were articulating exactly what I was wondering. You know, how can people do this if they have kids at home? So in a way, it just it sums up the whole point of the show for mm -hmm. me, that that conversation. And many of the revolutionaries say this was not a choice. This was forced upon me. I, I had to fight for my people, for these causes, 100%. for the liberation of others. That's exactly right. I think you you just said it really well, like that the, the way I ended up thinking about it is as a kid of revolutionaries, you, you kind of can't help but think, didn't, you know, didn't they care about me enough to like to, to, you know, to put aside those risks. But then when you think about it for them, it was about making a better future. It was about building a future that they could raise their kids in and build. And, and so for them, there was no choice. It was like raising kids and fighting for a better future. Those are the same thing. Why tell this story now? I think there were two reasons for me. There was a, a personal reason and a political reason. Um, 
for me, the personal reason to tell it now was, you know, my parents are getting older and my mom was about to turn 80 and my adopted mom, Kathy Boudin, had stage four cancer and was dying. She passed away before we finished the, the show. And so, you know, these people who had been part of my family forever, I was facing the fact that um, they weren't going to be around forever. And so I felt just personally that I, if I was ever going to tell this story, this family history, I had to do it now. But then politically, there was this bigger reason, which was thinking about where our country is at the moment and thinking about how, you know, I really do think that the country is facing the threat of authoritarianism and law and order fascism and white nationalism. And, and that those were the same threats that these people, not just my parents, but the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, they were confronting 40, 50 years ago. And to take some, you know, to learn some lessons from that story and also to take some inspiration from the courage of people who really decided that they were going to put everything on the line to make a better, a better country and a better world. Zay Dorn is a writer, professor, and the creator of the podcast Mother Country Radicals. Zay, thank you for coming back to CityCast Chicago. Thank you, Jacoby. It's always a pleasure. Before I let you go, a little bit of news. Amid ongoing debates about Riot Fest's future in Douglas Park, the lineup for this year's festival has been released, including the Foo Fighters, The Cure, and Parliament Funkadelic and George Clinton. To see the full list, check the show notes. Registration for the city's free summer bike lessons for adults and kids is open now. The Learn to Ride program is for everybody, whether you've never ridden a bike or want to learn how to better navigate city streets. Of course, I got a link for you. And some good news. The 2023 Chicago Food Truck Festival starts this Friday at Daly Plaza in the Loop and runs every Friday from 11 to 3 p.m. until October. As always, we appreciate you for listening. Make sure you're following along our daily newsletter, Hey Chicago, at chicago.citycast.fm. I'm here bright and early tomorrow. I'll talk to you then. Peace. Is there a story behind the title, Mother Country Radicals? Yeah, Mother Country Radicals is um, what Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers called the Weather Underground and, and white activists who were on their side. The idea was, you know, there's radicals elsewhere in the world. There's radicals, you know, in Vietnam. There's radicals in Algeria. But you all, you white activists here in America, you're Mother Country Radicals. You're here in the Mother Country. And so you have a special responsibility to fight back against, uh, you know, against the American military machine and against American racism. 